In case you missed the announcement, the Optimize Yourself podcast is currently on summer hiatus, but that doesn't mean that we plan to leave you high and dry without engaging conversations that educate, motivate, and inspire you. We're going to be back this fall with some significant changes and improvements to the show, but in the meantime, this week I would like to share with you a recent interview that I did with Alex Ferrari for his Indie Film Hustle podcast. We talk about a variety of topics, including my work on Cobra Kai, how to maintain optimal health despite the challenges that come with being a very sedentary creative professional, and how I balance being a, let's say, semi-retired editor with being an online entrepreneur podcaster, and an online coach. I highly recommend Alex's podcast, Indie Film Hustle, as well as his other shows, Bulletproof Screenwriting and Filmtrepreneur, all of which can be found at IndieFilmHustle.com, all one word. And now, without further ado, the entirety of my Indie Film Hustle interview with Alex Ferrari. I'd like to welcome the show, Zach Arnold, man. How you doing, Zach? I'm good. I'm so excited to be here, man. I appreciate that, man. I'm excited to have you here, man. Uh, you reached out uh, the other day, and I saw what you're doing with your website. And and uh, to, just to be honest with you, the, the main reason you're here is Cobra Kai. I mean, other than that, there's no other reason I would have you on the show. No, I'm joking. Is there anything else to talk about? I mean, <laughs> I come mean, on, really, really? There's not like that was the that was the gateway drug for me to get into your world. And when I saw like, oh, he's the editor of. Netflix is, excuse me, Netflix is. Yeah, uh, Netflix Cobra is Cobra Kai. Let's not, not forget YouTube that. Not YouTube Red. No, 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 no. Netflix YouTube is. YouTube who? who? Red. What? No, it's Netflix is Cobra Kai. Uh, I said, well, and I, you know, it's so funny because I was telling my wife, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go talk to the editor tomorrow of Cobra Kai. She's like, really? Because she's a huge fan of the show with me. So, and like you were saying off air, like there's two react. What are the two reactions of people that, that, that you find out that work on Cobra Yeah, Kai? so I've, I've been on the show for, uh, just to, to clarify, I've been on it for two seasons. I wasn't there for season one. We can talk all about like how I discovered it, how I yeah, got the yeah. job. Because as far as like, you know, indie film hustlers who want to get on projects they want to get on, mm-hmm. got a really, really good story for that. But I was on season two and on season three. And at the end of uh, season two, when everybody wanted to, to see what I was working on, or you go to a family event, or you go to a mixer, oh, what's, what's the show you're working on right now? Cobra Kai. One of two reactions. It's either, oh my God, that is my favorite show. I love it. Or, oh, I've never heard of that. What's that on? Oh, it's on YouTube. Huh. Okay. Um, well, good, good for you. Good for you. Right? It's like, really? And then as soon as you say it's on Netflix, ooh, when is it coming out? It's like, you, change, you just change Netflix and uh, YouTube. You, you change them around. The conversation changes. It's, no, I, and I would tell people like all the time, like, dude, have you seen Cobra Kai? Like, no, where is it? YouTube. YouTube. What do you mean yeah. where on YouTube? Like the free? I'm like, no, it's YouTube Red. What's yeah. that? What's yeah, that? well, like, the, the, it, it's. Uh, and the, 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 the funny thing is I had the exact same reaction. So I'm not immune to this like anybody oh, I else. Did too. I, did I, too. Ne- I knew nothing about the show when it was in production, didn't even know that they were making it. And then there just started to be all these whispers around the industry like, hey, have you heard of this thing, Cobra Kai and this and that? I'm like, no, what is it? Oh, they uh, YouTube, they, they remade this like TV series. It's based on the Karate Kid saga. And they brought back the original characters. And my response was, how dare they? How dare they destroy my childhood, right? And then because of all the algorithms, one day the trailer pops up in my sidebar. I'm like, oh, fine, fine. I'll watch the trailer, right? And I watch the trailer. I'm like, damn. This looks good. I should, you know what? I, I'm just going to watch the pilot. That's it. I'm just going to watch the pilot and, and, it was and free. I'll be the done. Pilot like, was free. The pilot and was free. the pilot was free. And like everyone else on the planet, I watched all 10 episodes at once because oh, I yes. couldn't stop watching it. Yes. And as soon as I finished it the first time, I said, I am cutting this show. 
there has never been a better fit for me creatively than cutting this show because the Karate Kid was essentially my Star Wars as a child. Mm -hmm. And as far as the technical skills and the storytelling skills, I've been working on shows like this most of my career, stuff like Burn Notice and Empire and like music and action and comedy all mixed together. So I said, I'm, I'm perfect for this show. But the funny thing was, I was a naysayer like everybody else until I actually took the time to watch it. All right, so we're going to get back to Cobra Kai in a second. So first, let's take it back, all the way back, sir. How did you get into the business? Uh, well, I got into the business originally. My, uh, my love for it came about when I was a kid. So you hear about all the, the kids of the 80s, they all have the same story. Running around the house with VHS camcorders and shooting videos and whatnot. Uh, my older brother, who's uh, significantly older, is like 13, 14 years older than I am. Um, he was working at Best Buy, so he got a discount, came home with a camera. I was maybe 10 years old. And we spent the entire weekend running around chasing each other with Nintendo guns. And we called our movie Duck Hunt. Right? And I hated it. That's that's, that's trademark. I'm sorry. You can't use that. Trademark. Sorry about that. So you'll you'll have to bleed that out. Nintendo trademark. Um, We can talk about that. Exactly. Um, But the, the funny thing was that when we were done shooting it, I said to him, I never want to do this again. Like I've, so I didn't realize it, but I've hated being on set and being in production since I was 10 years old. And I said, what was the point of that? It was like 12, two 12-hour days for six minutes worth of material. Just not interested at all. But then two weeks later, he comes back with a new VHS tape, and he had scored the whole thing with the score of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Oh. And I swear to God, it was, like, it was like seeing porn for the first time. And I said, what in the world is this? How did you do this? This is the coolest thing I have ever seen. And he showed me how he hooked up one VHS player to another one and then fed the audio from a cassette deck into the record player, play, record, play, record. That was the next 10 years of my life. That's all that I did was deck to deck uh, creating my own highlight reels and mm-hmm. um, doing you know montages from all my favorite comedic pieces from movies, whatever it was. Not really knowing that, oh, this is actually something I can do for a living or I can get paid for it. Um, so I went to the University of Michigan and I got into film studies, which is much more liberal arts education. And basically every class you have to write about Battleship Potemkin. And there wasn't a whole lot of uh, production going on. Um, but I became self-taught learning how to do digital editing and got multiple inter- internships learning Avid and Final Cut Pro 2 at the time, the original, um, learning After Effects. And really wanted to to get into the post world, and then uh, I was uh, I had applied for one job the week before my graduation ceremony that was out in L.A. just on a whim. I'm like, I'm just going to send out a resume. It was a company that was doing uh, smaller budget indie film trailers, and they had done uh, the trailer and the TV spots for my favorite film of all time, which is Memento. And Friday night before graduation, I get a phone call, and they say, "We got your resume. We'd love to meet with you next week. Are you available?" Mind you, I was in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and they were in California. Piece of the story that I left out is I gave them a California Hollywood address because, as you know, if you're not local, nobody's ever calling you. Absolutely. So I fudged the address, gave them the address of a friend of mine. I said, yeah, sure, I I can come out for a meeting, no problem. Hung up the phone. Mom, Dad, I got to go to Los Angeles. What? I've got a job interview next week. So I had my graduation ceremony Saturday morning. I got on a plane Sunday morning, had my interview early that next week landed later that week and they called and said, can you start Monday? And I've been working in uh, the movie business ever since. So that was uh, just short of 20 years ago. And you, and you were, and you're hanging on your friend's couch. I was, I no, not even on his couch. His couch was taken. I was sleeping on the floor between his kitchen and his bedroom. That's where my uh, my journey to to LA started because the couch was already taken. That's such an, I know, right? Now did they, so let me guess, did he live in Van Nuys? 
No, he actually lived in Hollywood. I'll never forget. Okay, it was fair a, enough. On, it's close. It close. was on Carlton Way, just off of Gower, just short of Sunset Boulevard. So, so you, were, you were in the mix, sir. You were in the mix. Oh, yes. I was right in the middle of it. Yep. From uh, small town, suburban, uh, middle, uh, Midwest America to Carlton off of Gower and Sunset in Hollywood. Talk about a shock, right? <laughs> I almost needed a passport to travel because it was like going from one foreign country to another. I mean, I still remember the first time I came to L.A. Uh, when I was just still doing recon to see w- when my wife and I was going to move out here. And uh, I said to my friend, like, we got to go to Hollywood Boulevard. And my friend who's been living here for about a year, he was from Florida as well. He said, you don't, you don't. <laughs> he goes, no, nah, we got to go to Hollywood Boulevard. We want to go see the Chinese theater. We want to go. He's like, all right. All right. It's not, what, it's not what you think it is. So we go down there and we park where Madame Tussauds is now. Mm-hmm. That was a parking lot before. So we parked there right next to the Chinese theater and we got out. And I'm not kidding you. Within the second we got out, we turn around and there's this girl there and she's like, welcome to Hollywood. And she flashes us. Okay. <laughs> and she's like, woo. And then she just walked away. And my wife and I, I look at him. He's like, welcome to Hollywood. <laughs> I tried to tell you guys. I tried to tell you. And then as we kept walking down the street, it was just like, oh, this is, oh, is that a needle? Oh, God, this is not not Uh what I see on the Oscars. Yeah. Hollywood's lying. I'm sure you had that experience all the time where when you have people that visit, they always want to see Hollywood or something else. And you're like, please, no, I'll do anything but that. I can't stand going. And they insist. And then they go and you're like, all right, I tried to tell you. Right. It's, 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 it's just, it's. Yeah, it's, it's it's rough with the Elmo and the giant sp- Spider Man. Oh God, it's just tours trap to say the least. But mm-hmm. anyway, so that's how that's how you began your story. All right, so then you get into editing, um, and and you just and you stick it. Yeah, you've been editing for how long? How many years? Just about twenty years now. Twenty years. And what was your first big gig? Like first, like uh, my first big gig was like actually getting paid as an editor. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I actually made the transition from assistant editor to editor at that same company that I was talking about five months after I started with them. So I had extensive experience as an editor in college. I had worked for a couple of news stations and it, uh, edited commercials that were broadcast throughout the, the Detroit metro area, which, you know, not a huge area. But when you're a sophomore in college and half a million people are seeing stuff you're cutting, like that's real experience you're getting paid for, right? Um, so I essentially started taking freelance editing work nights and weekends while I was being an assistant editor during the day. And I eventually started getting offers that were enough that I could leave the assistant editing gig. And I said, listen, I want to stay here. I want to say no to these other opportunities, but I'm not staying here as an assistant. So my first choice is to stay here and I become an editor or I'm going to take the other editing gigs. And that day I was promoted and I had um, and the, the other ironic thing about this was that at the company I worked for at the time, they were doing some bigger, um, like studio level indie stuff like uh, memento, but they also had some smaller stuff. And there was a movie that had come in. It was a Paramount classics film, had big stars in it, but it wasn't a good movie. And essentially all of the other editors were passing it around and saying, oh, I'm not going to cut this. I don't want to work on this. Give it to the new guy. Right. So they hand me this movie and they're like, here's your first trailer. Tee hee ha ha ha. Right. Six months later, I won the Golden Trailer Award for the Golden Fleece, which is essentially the Oscars for trailer editors. Uh-huh. Very first trailer I ever cut won uh, the Golden Trailer. It was a movie that was called North Fork. And for those that aren't familiar with the award, it's best trailer for the worst movie. No, I so, just, I've, I've had the director on the show, sir. <laughs> ah, 
So, well, 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 don't tell them that I won that award for that. But I mean, it's, it's public knowledge. Um, but the, the point is that, uh, it, it put me in a position where I could take something that other people weren't as excited about and I could show my excitement and show my talent. And as soon as they saw what I was able to do with that, now the rest is history. So the, the kind of, kind of my claim to fame that got me from that level to the next one was I also did all of the trailer and marketing materials for the passion of the Christ. And that that was kind of the, yeah, that did okay. Right at the time, everybody was uh, before it came out. Everybody was laughing and and uh, whispering behind uh, people's backs. And you know, again, no company in town wanted to do the marketing for it. Um, but we had a relationship with the distributor, so they handed it to us. Did the trailer for that? It did well. And then from there, you know, a the, lot, lot of things changed after that was on my resume. So you, but you started off as a trailer editor, which is a very different scale, a skill set than. The narrative, television narrative, very different skill set. Comedy yes. narrative, all all that kind of stuff. It's very yes. very different. And uh, when people look at my resume and they look at the path and they try to kind of reverse engineer and figure it out, everybody says the same thing. I have no idea how you got where you are. It is such a scattershot mess of dots that don't seem to connect. So for me, it was two to three years of being a trailer editor, but I always knew I wanted to do long form. I really wanted to do long form features and drama. That was all, and that's what everybody says. I want to do scripted drama. I want to do scripted drama, but I was going to do scripted drama. It wasn't like, well, yeah, I'm pigeonholed. I guess I'm stuck. I said, no, this is what I'm going to do. So through a mutual connection, I was able to land my uh, first job as a, a feature editor on a low budget indie. And I was actually working on that nights and weekends while I was editing trailers during the day to the point where that just got unsustainable. And I eventually decided to make the transition to the feature, even though I was getting really, really good offers to work at big companies in the trailer world. The reason being that I could see myself climbing higher and higher up the wrong ladder. And I had multiple colleagues that got to a certain age and said, man, I don't want to be doing this anymore. But I just, all I was focusing on was the money and climbing up. And I didn't realize I was climbing a completely different ladder than I wanted to be. And I said, I'm 25, I'm single. Like, why not pursue what I want to do now and worry about the money later? So I spent the next seven to eight years of my career cutting low-budget indie films just because I wanted to gain the experience, build the network, and build credits on my resume. While kind of behind the scenes, I was cutting a bunch of trailers and featurettes just to pay the bills. Yeah, trailer editor. I mean, trailer editor could be extremely lucrative, uh, especially here. You get oh yeah, absolutely. If you get hooked up in the right circles, you. I mean, I've worked some trailer editors, and I've been a trailer editor. But like, even when I was working with some other like really high end guys, I'm like, how much are you paid? Mm -hmm. And I was getting those offers, and I turned them down for a job that was paying me flat six hundred dollars a week as the editor, as the lead editor. And I was okay with it because I knew that I didn't want to to climb to the the top of the wrong ladder. I didn't want to be stuck there. And the funny thing was that, and we'll, we can maybe talk more about how I made the transition into TV in a second, but I've talked to colleagues recently that I worked with 15, 20 years ago that are still working on trailers, making a lot of money. And they all say the same thing. I wish I had, I wish I'd made the transition when you did, because now I'm stuck. But right. when you're 25 years old, it's terrifying. Yeah. Like you're a 50 year old trailer editor who's really well known. Like the jump into movies at that point is going to be a tough, because you, you've got to grind for another five years. Yep. Five, six, unless you get, unless you get something that pops, but if not, you really got to grind and just the world is so different. Yeah. So different than it was when we were younger. All right. So let's get into Cobra Kai. So how the hell did you get Cobra Kai? And, and I I just need to know the story. Absolutely. Um, so like I said, the, the beginning of the story is that I identified uh, the show just through the random YouTube algorithm and seeing the trailer. 
Um, but as soon as I finished it, I said, it wasn't a matter of how cool would it be to work on this show? It was a different mindset. I said, I am cutting this show. Like there is no question, there is no alternate reality where I do not edit season two of the show. So the first thing that I did was I did research. This is actually a process that I teach extensively in my program now. Um, it's called going down the IMDb Pro rabbit hole responsibly. So you target a show and what you do is you start to build this concentric circle of network where you can find who are all the people that were working on it and do I know any of those people? And if I don't, do I know people that know those people? So it was a matter of you, you can't just go online and go on whatever the job website is, whether it's Media Match or Mandy, and it's going to say, seeking editor for season two of high-profile Sony Pictures television show called Cobra Kai. It doesn't work that way. It's all about relationships. And one of the, the biggest misnomers or the biggest excuses, frankly, that people use about not being successful in Hollywood is, oh, it's all about who you know. Well, no shit, it's about who you know. Get to know people. Mm -hmm. Right. Make it a full time job to build relationships and get to know people you want to spend all day long in your small, dark room learning Avid or DaVinci or whatever it is. That's fine. But if people don't know that you're really good at your craft, you're never going to get hired. So right. I always tell my students, don't wait to be put in the, the right place at the right time. Put yourself there. Right. So I, what I did was I started to research who all the people were, went through extensively every single name, and I found one person that really didn't even work that much on season one creatively. It was a producer, a post-producer that was brought on at the tail end of it, essentially just to keep the trains running, make sure that all the color was done correctly, make sure that all the delivery deadlines were met. Mm -hmm. um, and this was somebody that I had worked with on a pilot for a show called Underground about three or four years ago. Um, so I cut the pilot for that show. And we only worked together for, I don't know, maybe five, six weeks. So we had a, had a working relationship, but I hadn't kept up with her. And I thought to myself, how do I provide value to this person? That's always the first thing I'm thinking. I think that when it comes to networking, everybody thinks to themselves, oh, how can I get something, right? And I'm thinking, how can, how can I provide value? Because ultimately, this show really hit me hard. And I know that it's, uh, it's something that's providing a lot of positive impact and value to others. So I want to learn why did the creators make this show? What was their, their deeper why? What was their purpose behind it? So I can really crawl into their heads. And thus... I can connect with her so I can demonstrate that I understand why the show was made. So what I did was I rewatched the whole season again, and this might be a unique uh, situation that not a lot of people are in, but I wrote an extensive article about it. And it wasn't a YouTube review. It was, here. let me break down all of the deeper themes of the show that you're missing and how you can apply them to your lives. So I would take quotes from the show, and then I would break it down using a lot of the theories and philosophies that I talk about with Mindset. And it was only after doing that, we're talking like, this was probably four or five solid days of work. I blocked out my calendar for the whole week and it probably just said Cobra Kai. And re remember, this, this is as, as an entrepreneur, you know how much happens over the course of a week when you're creating content. And I just stopped the presses. I'm like, nope, everything I'm doing is gonna be going towards getting this job. And I wrote like a four or 5,000 word article about the deeper themes. And then I reached out to this woman, to this producer, just reintroducing myself. Hey, don't know if you remember, we worked together on the show a few years ago. I just happened to see your name in the credit roll for Cobra Kai. And I got to say, like the show blew my mind. It was so fantastic. It must have been an amazing experience to work on. I love the show so much that it inspired me to write this. Insert hyperlink here, right? And that was it. I didn't ask for a job. I 
wasn't, hey, attached is my resume for your reference. Could you please pass yeah, it along, right? right? No, right. Hate that stuff. But that's the default mode that everybody uses with Correct. networking. Right. I didn't do that. I just provided value, right? I wanted to, to make somebody's day. So they're like, my God, I spent all this time in this you know dark room and it was so hard, but it had an impact on somebody. That's kind of what I do at the end of the day is I want to have a positive impact. So I provided that value. She got back to me. Oh, yeah, of course I remember you. It's great to hear from you again. Uh, really impressed by the article. I'm glad that you loved the show so much. By the way, just wanted to let you know, they might be looking for an editor for season two. Interested? Question mark. And I'm like, I'm in, right? So as soon as she sent that, I don't remember exactly what the response was, but it was probably a lot of all caps expletives. Yes. Um, but whatever it was, it was like, yes, I'm very, very much interested. Um, I'm currently looking at a couple other shows at the moment, which was true, but this would be by far my number one choice. Is there an opportunity to meet with the creators of the show? She said they're not really actively looking for editors at the time, meaning just because of the calendar, they were still in the writer's room and that was probably a couple yeah. months away. And I said, I totally understand that, but I have other opportunities that I'll probably end up taking. So if there's a possibility I could meet with them this week, that would be, uh, that would be ideal. So they kind of shuffled things around. They had saw the article. They saw the background that I had um, as far as the shows that I had edited. Like, yeah, okay, we'll meet with them. Walked in there, did the interview, and I got the job in the room. And I've been working on the show ever since. And I actually, if uh, people want to hear much more about this from the showrunners, the creator's perspective... I did a 90-minute podcast interview talking about this process from their side of the table. Really? So I go into this really in depth. Yeah. So wait a minute. So you did you interview them or they? I did. Yeah. So I did a podcast with all four of us because there are three guys that created the show. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to talk about, number one, why they wanted to make it. But number two, I wanted to talk through how I got on the show and what it looked like when I came to them from their perspective. So I don't know, what well, what did you think? Why did you bring me on the show? What did you think about the the interview? Like, So I, I wanted to deconstruct how it went from they had no idea who I was to essentially being hired in the room so other people can do the same thing. But see, the, the thing that you're doing here, um, Zach, is it, it, it's, it's a lot of work. I'm sure it that's is a lot of work. <laughs> it's, it's, that's the first thing that I hear so much when they're like, Oh, well, how do you build an audience? Or how do you do this? Or how do you do like, well, you have to do this, this, and this. It's going to probably be a couple of years for this to build out. And, and just like, oh, that just worked. Uh -huh. So what you just said, oh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, so says the guy wearing a hat that says hustle on it, right? <laughs> yeah. And, then, and that's no, what I tell people. I'm a devil's like, advocate. <laughs> Oh, of course. No, of course. I totally understand that. Um, but the, what's really easy is sending a group email to 50 oh. people that you've worked with before saying, hey, guys, just wanted to let you know I'm yeah. available. Um, I just finished XYZ show. And if you I know of any those. opportunities, I get those all the time. I never respond to them, even if they're people I know and they're friends, because I'm thinking, really? Couldn't have even sent an individual bad email to me? You had to send a bad group email? You could have just copied and pasted and sent it to me. Even uh -huh. That would have been better. Even that would have been better. Yeah. So I, I totally agree. Um, but if you want to talk about work, that was one of the easier jobs that I've been able to get. So the way that I originally got into television was I had been doing indie features for seven or eight years. And it was right around the time of the writer's strike. And it was also the time when all of the studio indie uh, yeah. uh, studios were going uh, like Warner Independent and Paramount Classics, like all of these that were in their heyday all started to close their doors. That's what I wanted to do. That's what I was working towards. I'm like, well, crap, like I, I can't do the stuff I want to do because it doesn't exist. I wanted to do those 10 to $20 million indie features. I didn't want to do the Avengers. 
um, just from a, from a lifestyle perspective, which we may be talking about later. Um, but I thought I really want to do character driven stories. And that was when the golden age of TV really started. I said, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to move into scripted drama on television. (laughs) You can't transition from features to TV. You know, I think I've heard people tell me that before. They said I couldn't go from trailers to features, and I want to go from features to to network and cable TV. So I had worked on a, uh, a web series at the time. This was in the, the early days of people like making legit web series. And I'd done more, one for uh, Sony Pictures TV for Crackle uh, that was called The Ban and Way. I knew you were going to say The Ban and Way. I've had him on. I've had Mark on. Oh, no, no kidding. Oh, yeah, I know so, Mark. Yeah, well, yeah. well, then it's crazy that we, you and I hadn't connected how before because I've known Mark it? for over a decade. How is it that you and I don't know each other? I know, isn't that crazy? This is crazy. I had Mark on. I've had Mark. I had Mark on like two and a half years ago. Wow, that's, and I, that's and crazy. I worked with Robert Forster mm-hmm. on my on, on on films as well. So he was telling us about. Oh yeah, I just worked on this this thing web series. They paid me uh-huh. a lot, so I showed up. Yeah, uh, <laughs> so it was just great. So I can't believe we don't. It's so funny. yeah, it's such a small incestuous business isn't it it's that's that's what people need to learn it's a very very small business and you have to be very careful how you conduct yourself and how yes. you treat people yes but it can also be very encouraging when you realize how small it is because you mm-hmm. build a few select relationships yes. and you're in for life yeah. um so anyway i had uh, i cut the band in way um and as you know as far as web series go it was oh, very very successful um ended up winning a bunch of awards and i was told by multiple people you know and i said what's burn notice They're like Dude, you've never heard of Burn Notice? It's this awesome like spy show on USA Network. It's totally your thing. I'm like, all right, I guess I'll check it out. And I watch it and I'm like, oh my God, this is the ban and way on television. Like it's it's almost the same thing. Mm-hmm. So I thought, this is the show. This is how I'm gonna transition. So essentially what I did is uh, even before the Bannon Way came out, it was when I just finished the the trailer and marketing campaign and that went uh went uh, went public. And just for those that uh, you know, indie film hustle world. Yes, I did all the trailers and marketing while I was doing the show, while I was doing the web series, because yeah. they have no money to pay anybody. So you just kind of do all of it, um, which in this case um, very much uh, behooved me because I was able to, to use that to my advantage. And again, I just went on IMDb Pro and I looked at every single person involved with the show. And at least the ones that were in post-production or in writing, I essentially Facebook stalked every single one of them. And I'm not saying I advocate doing so, but that was the approach that I took at the time. And I got one response, and it was from one of the editors of the show. He saw the trailer for The Bannon Way, and he said, dude, this looks really good. And it kind of looks a lot like our show. We should talk. I'm like, okay, great. So he and I got together for lunch. We hit it off. We had a good relationship. And at the end of the, the meeting, I handed him a DVD demo reel that had the first two episodes and it's a web series. So it's like 15 minutes worth. What's this DVD? And all I said, what's this DVD? I know digital what? (laughs) Um, And your younger audience is like Wikipedia DVD. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) We were talking about VHS tapes 15 minutes ago. Again, I'm talking, I'm way too young. Yeah. No kidding. Right. (laughs) Um, So uh, I had handed in the first two episodes and I said, all I'm looking for is just creative feedback. I just want to know what you think. I really admire the style you guys have developed on Burn Notice. I'm a really, really big fan of the show because I had started watching it. Um, I think I uh, had watched the, the first couple of seasons at the time. He's like, yeah, no problem. I'll, I'll, I'll take a look at it when I get a chance to. He called me back a week later and he's like, dude, this is better than our show. Like, what is this? Like, seriously, this is really, really well done and I'm really impressed. And from there, he and I just stayed in touch. A couple months later, he called me up 
And he said that I'm going to be going on to a pilot that I'm going to be editing for Matt Nix, who is the creator of Burn Notice. And I'm going to be missing one episode of season four. And I just want to, I want to curb your enthusiasm. Like, I don't think you have the experience, but I think that you deserve to get an interview just, just so you can get in the room and start meeting people. And I thought, well, first of all, that's amazing. Thank you for the opportunity. And then I hung up the phone and I said, well, F this, I'm getting this job. Like, I am made for this show. Sure, sure. So you want to talk about hard work. Before that interview, I watched the entire series, which was three seasons of 42-minute episodes, 16 episodes a season. I watched the whole first three seasons twice. I basically rain-manned Burn Notice. And I remembered every episode. I knew their transitions. I knew their style. I just, I, I basically absorbed it like a sponge. And when I went into my interview, I knew the show better than the executive producer did. And what I found out after the fact is they said that we were interviewing multiple high-profile TV editors that had done shows like 24 and Heroes. They were doing these big-time number one shows. None of them knew our show. None of them were willing to even watch it and understand our style. And we knew that we could hire you, and on day one, you could cut our show with no learning curve. So that's how I ended up getting the job. And from there, I got the one episode. They saw my editor's cut. And they said, well, you're part of the family. And then I ended up staying there for the next four seasons until the finale. So again, sounds like so much work. Like I, I blocked out two weeks of my life to sit <laughs> and watch television. But it, that turning point has changed the last decade of my life. Just that one decision. So, so I, want, I want the audience to understand. I want to point out a couple of things in your story, which are fantastic. One, you do an immense amount of homework and you're laser focused when you go after something. You do an immense amount of homework and you're laser, laser focused. And then when you are approaching people to get a job, you don't approach them to get a job. You approach them to build a relationship, to provide value, to be of service to them in one way, shape or form if, to like, Hey, what do you think of my stuff? You know, cause we already started that. You didn't start off with like a cold email, like, Hey, I just edited the Bannon way. Um, here's two episodes. I'd like a full report. Like you don't mm -hmm. start the relationship that way, but once you, you build it up naturally and organically to the point where he's like, you know what? I, I just talked to this kid. I don't think you're going to get a guy, but I'm going to let you come in. And that's the only thing you need. You just need that one mm -hmm. opportunity. But so often filmmakers and people in the business, they just, they don't use a scalpel. They use a sledgehammer because it's easier to do a sledgehammer move, but the problem is that everyone uses a sledgehammer and not many people actually take the time to do the scalp. Is that fair? Exactly. Yes. Oh, not, not, that, that's exactly the way that I teach it in my program. I use a different analogy, though, that when it comes to networking and meeting people and trying to get jobs, everybody's heard of the shotgun approach, right? Sure. So the, the, the best visualization I can give, this is a, a horrible post-pandemic visualization. It worked great until March, but you walk into a giant room of 500 people and the mindset is, I've got a stack of 500 business cards. I'm just going to hand them all out. Fingers crossed, man. Someone. Somebody remembers me and they, it's just, I just need one person, right? But if you were to do weeks of research and identify one target and you walk into that room and you build a relationship, that's no longer the shotgun approach. That's the sniper approach. Sure. So my approach to networking is I'm the sniper where I will spend weeks preparing for one single shot that everybody would say, oh, that shot's way too far. That's over a mile away and your target's the size of a quarter. Yeah, but if I do the work, I can hit it. And how much, how much energy am I going to save in the long run 
if yes. I switch my mindset from the shotgun approach to the sniper approach. No, a- a- amen. Amen. I mean, it's, I don't know how, how we've not met. <laughs> I know. Isn't it crazy? It's, it's insane. We have now. I mean, it's well, like, we'll, we have to make up for all this lost time. I mean, it's like we, we, we were cut from the same cloth, you know, it's like, it, it's, it's insanity. Uh, and we've been in town and, and you don't live far from me. That's not even scary part. Like I saw where you live, like you don't live that much farther than me. So I was like, we, we, we don't, we've don't. probably seen each other at Ralph's at least once or twice. And we just <laughs> didn't know it. If you were wearing your hustle hat, I probably would have introduced myself. Uh, yes. Yes. I, I, I always walk around ge- generally with big signs up around me that says, Hey, I'm Alex. Hey, yeah. No, right. No. And you, and you hand out copies of your podcast because you want people to review and subscribe, right? Obviously do my podcast, subscribe to my podcast. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? If but guy that's in, what people are doing. That's what Ralph's. they're doing via email. Oh, right? yeah. It's like we, we, we were talking about this before that you go on social media now and everybody and their brother has a YouTube channel and they have a podcast. My children now have YouTube channels. They're eight and 10 and they have their own YouTube channels. And like my, what I've seen them doing, and they're, they're kids, so I, they don't know any better. But my son will send me an email saying, can you please subscribe to my YouTube channel? And I just laugh. I'm like, I know grown men and women that are doing the exact same thing right now. And you go on social media and they're like, Hey guys, check out my YouTube channel and subscribe. And I'm like, no, if you create content that is so valuable to somebody else, they will subscribe because they want more from you. So just focus on providing a tremendous amount of value to other people. You don't need to ask them to do anything for you. That's the paradigm shift that so many people don't understand. Yes, absolutely. Now, do you have any tips on working with like network producers, clients, things like that? Because I, I mean, for my client days, uh, I have a couple of tricks up my sleeve, but I'd love to hear what you think. Um, I've got plenty of them, but I'm, I'm going to throw this back at you and throw this back at your listeners as well, because this is something that I always talk about in my program, mm-hmm. is that if you want a really, really good answer, you got to ask a really specific question. Okay. So instead of just, I'm looking for tips to work with people, give me specific instances. So give me a, a really specific scenario. So when you're in the room and there's a producer who's such a pain in the ass and you got to sit in that room for the next 10 hours and they just don't know what they want. They're ignorant. They're idiots. They're ego driven. And they're, they're going to hurt the show and you are the editor. And even, even so to the point where they're arguing with the director who's also in the room and you as the editor uh, are essentially Switzerland. You can't, you want to creatively be with the director, but the guy who's paying you is the producer how do you dance that line? Hmm. That sounds so unfamiliar. I've, 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 I've never been in a scenario like that in my entire career. I wish I could be helpful. I really do. Ooh, boy, that's a tough one. I know it's rough. Huh? I mean, I know. Yeah. So the, really the, the short version of it is how do you, how do you maintain your sanity while dealing with people that just don't seem to know how to collaborate and don't know what they want and don't know how to communicate it? So the the first strategy that I've used very successfully throughout my career is I do everything I possibly can to convince people to get out of the room because the best work is not going to happen when we're all sitting in the room, right? Right, right. So what I want to do is I want to collect everybody's feedback and I want to give them the freedom. And again, I'm always trying to frame it as I want to provide you value and make your life easier. So instead of fighting about, oh, we shouldn't do this or that or the other thing, I'll say, listen, let's all let's all bring our ideas together. 
you guys don't want to be stuck in this dark room all day long while you just watch me hit the keyboard, right? Let's let's bring all our ideas together. Give me a couple hours or half a day or whatever it takes to just work on this. And then we'll have something to really respond to. And then you're going to be fresh. So the first thing is I do everything I can to get everybody out of my space. Number one, because I do think it's better for collaboration and creativity. Number two, you know, referring back to the beginning of the podcast and being introverts, just let me do my thing and get out of my room, right? So that that's that's the first thing that I'll do. But then the, the second is that I will do my best to really try to get everybody to see this as we're not trying to figure out who's the most important person in the room. It's who has the best idea because the best idea wins. That's something I really try to facilitate in my edit room. So one of the, the metaphors that I always use, and I even talked about this in my interview uh, with Cobra Kai, because when they interviewed me, I interviewed them. I wanted to know what's your process, how do you approach it to make sure that we are compatible. When you're young, you just want the gig and you want the credit. When you get to a certain point, if the job is miserable, it doesn't matter what the credit is or how good the show is, it's not worth it. So I always want to know what's your collaborative process and I said, to me, as far as I'm concerned, if I have my door open and I'm working on something and the janitor's cart rolls by and they say, you know what? I would go with the close-up instead of the wide shot. If my thought process is janitor, what did they know about filmmaking, right? That's the worst way to look at it. But if I listen to them, I'm like, huh, he's right. Close-up would be better. Oh my God, right? Those are the people that I want to work with. And if I know that I'm working with people like that, I can be more open and sharing my ideas because we're all going to be very energetic and sometimes confrontational, but it's always with respect because we're trying to fight for the best idea winning, mm -hmm. not the person whose ego is the strongest and the most important that needs to be pleased. Now, on the flip side, you are inevitably going to be in situations where that is no longer the case. And I will do my best to express what I think is the best idea. And then I just leave my ego out of it and then it essentially becomes, I'm an extension of the workstation. I press the buttons that you don't know how to press and I will give you whatever you want. And that's not a good place to be. But as soon as you, re as soon as you release your mindset from, I have to be the shepherd of this thing and I have to make sure the best idea wins, sometimes you just have to let that go. Say, all right. It's not your I mean, show. This is, this is the way things are gonna be. They're paying me to be a technician, right? And at this point, I'm the technician. And as, as soon as I accept that, it makes it easier. It doesn't make it easy, but it makes it easier. So for me, it's all about, number one, give me the space to do what I do best, which is not with you guys sitting on the couch every two minutes on your phones while I'm trying to come up with ideas. But then if we are stuck in the room, all right, well, let's at least come to the consensus that the best idea wins, not the highest person on the call sheet or the, the biggest name in the credits or who has the biggest paycheck. Mm -hmm. And if that doesn't work, well, then I'm basically here to be a set of hands to give you what you want. I'll express my opinion here and there, but if you don't want to hear it, collect my paycheck and I'm going to go home and I'm going to polish my resume and I'm going to look for another show. Right. Exactly. And I, I, what I always say is, I always tell people, offer to pay the check twice. You give mm. your idea once, doesn't get, give it one more time. If they say no, move on. Yeah. See, the, in the, the way that I do it is very, very similar. I have a, a process that uh, I talk about that's almost the same. Uh, do you know editor Alan Bell? Yeah, I know the name. I know the name. Yeah, so uh, he'd done the, he's done the, the last three Hunger Games films. He did The Amazing Spider-Man. Um, he, he started out in the, the Fox Searchlight and you know, indie film world as well, which is where he and I got to know each other. Uh, but he essentially said the same thing, but he said, I do it three times. The first time, I'm very clear about what my idea is. The second time, I'll just, you know, 
an hour later or a month later and we're watching the same sequence, I'll put it out there again. And if they say no to it, okay, that's fine. But then just one more time before we lock picture. Hey, by the way, guys, before we decide that we're done with this, I just wanted to bring up A, B, and C. Just, just wanted to put it out there one more time. And then if they say no, well, then you move on with your life. But I had a, another editor that was on a panel once that said something that was really profound to me. And I actually heard it recently. And I'm really, um, I'm selfishly upset that I didn't come up with it myself because it was so brilliant. And they said, at the end of the day, whatever work we're doing ends up on TV or on the screen or whatever it is, like over 90% of those edits are our choices. We have to be okay with the other 10% belonging to other people. I was like, brilliant. So you, sometimes you just have to let other people make their choices, even if they're cringeworthy moments for you, knowing that you did your best. And, would, and, and this is a little trick I've done, and I'm, sure I'm not the first to do it. Uh, do you leave a mistake in so the guy with the ego has something to say? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you leave a bad cut in or you leave something mm-hmm. that's so obvious that they have to like, uh, because they have to justify themselves being in that room. So you've yes. got to throw some red meat at them. Basically. Yeah. The, the, so the, there's a term that I, uh, that I came up with when you get those notes, whether it's the ones that you kind of intentionally put in or the ones that when you're reading through the notes, you know that it's just for the sake of them being in the room. I call those thumbprint notes. Oh, this is a thumbprint note because they just got to get their thumbprint on this. And uh, one of the the things that I've always wanted to do, and I always say I'm going to, and I never actually follow through, but I want to create a short film. And it's only going to be like two minutes long. And it starts with a scene in the edit room where you have the the executive giving his notes or whatever it is. But then you fast forward to like a month later, and he's watching the show with his wife or significant other, and that moment comes up. All for the reason of him being able to say, see that? That was my idea. Yeah. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. You just, you got to give him that little bit. And be okay with the fact that the vast majority of what's there, you get to own. Some of it, you just gotta you gotta swallow that pill. Now, I, I want to kind of get a transition into your optimize yourself, um, you know, company. What you're doing mm-hmm. with that? You know, as an editor, you you know, you sit in a chair in a dark room for ten to twelve, sometimes fifteen hours, depending on the on the job, uh, a day for you know, in our case, decades. Um, and that is generally not the healthiest, uh, way to look at things, you know? And as again, when you're 25, you're all good, man. It's all, you think you're bulletproof. You think you're a machine and you can do it forever all day, man. It's all good. Carpal tunnel. I don't know what that is. So, um, but then as you start getting older, your body starts to hurt back problems and that, what is your advice on I'm dealing with that because I know you have a whole course about that. So can you talk a little bit about that? I do. This this is uh, you literally, if, if I were a doll, you just pulled the string on the back and I, I might go for hours. So I'll, I'll keep my soapboxing to a minimum. Sure. Um, I'll, I'll make this more of a TED talk than, uh, you know, an entire uh, lecture. <laughs> okay. um, but yeah, so the, the realization that I had at about the age that you alluded to at 25, that was when I was working on that first indie film that I talked to you about. And when I was in director's cuts, uh, I was working from home because it's an Indian, you know, they basically exploit your, uh, your equipment and they just ask you to work from home for free. Obviously. Um, and the way that the schedule worked in the midst of director's cut is 9 a.m., knock on the door, director was at my house. She would leave at 1 a.m. It was that seven days a week for two months straight with zero days off with somebody on my couch all that time. She lived with me. I was living with my girlfriend at the time. I never saw my girlfriend, saw the director 16 hours a day. 
And as soon as we had a break where we were uh, in the process of sending the current cut out to all the various studios in town to get distribution, I completely collapsed. I mean, I couldn't function at all. And I vividly remember spending at least the next two to three weeks on the couch, 12 hours a day, watching Law & Order SVU reruns. To this day, I still can't watch it because I get these horrible anxiety flashbacks from remembering that. Um, But there was one point that my uh, girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, she had said, and I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was really simple. Like, hey, do you mind, you know, cleaning up the the stuff in the kitchen and taking out the trash? Broke down in tears because it was just too overwhelming for me to be able to figure out how can I do that right now with the energy that I have. And I'm like, okay, there's a problem here. Something is going on and there's something wrong. And uh, I started to, to meet with multiple specialists and I was dealing with severe depression and anxiety and the B word, which I had never really experienced before, which was burnout which is of anybody in a creative field, they should be more afraid of this than anything else because it destroys your ability to make a living. And I was completely and totally burned out. And if you had paid me a million dollars, I could not have come up with an original creative thought. And I realized at that point that the way I was doing things was not sustainable. I was, it's not like I was 50, I was 25, just starting my career saying, I'm not gonna be able to do this for the next 40 years. So something's gotta give because I'm just beginning and it's already destroying me. Before that, I was in really good shape. I had done martial arts for about 10 years. I was into yoga. Uh, I've always been into learning about the athlete's mindset and athlete psychology and just personal development. It's always kind of been, been a thing on the side. And I thought, well, what if instead of saying, well, I'm working, I'm in tunnel vision and I'm only working and I'll focus on all that stuff during hiatus, right? It's this idea of, oh yeah, I'll get healthy when hiatus comes. Well, that never works because as soon as hiatus comes, you're destroyed. And then you say, oh, I'm too tired right now, but I'll, I'll focus on my health when the next job starts. Vicious cycle that goes around and around and around. And I said, what if I can find a way to blend both of these things, blend all the things that I know about athletic performance and me wanted to perform at the highest creative levels and I bring them together. And that started about a decade's worth of self-experimentation just trying standing desks and sitting on yoga balls and trying juicers, like all this stuff. Like I went massively down the biohacking rabbit hole and a lot of stuff didn't work and I failed a lot. But then as things started to come together, people started to come to me and they'd say, how are you staying in such good shape and you're working on these big shows and you just had kids and it just, it's, it's, it just doesn't seem like it's possible. And I started to talk to them about all the things that I was doing. And really the, the biggest area that I was focused at the time was how can I be active at my desk? Because it's so hard to find the extra time. And find is a big word. It's all about I need to find the time. Well, guess what, guys? I know where your time is. It's on your calendar. Just because it's on my calendar. We have the same calendar. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You're not going to find any more time. And I thought with the schedule that I have, I can't just go to the gym for an hour a day if I have two kids and I have to wake up with them in the morning and I cut until 10 p.m. So my only choice, if I really want to be active and I want to stay healthy, is I have to figure out how to move right at my desk. So I spent about two years developing an entire program. So it's not just about, well, yeah, I've got a standing desk, but my feet hurt all day long. Like you get a height adjustable desk, there are certain mats, different types of chairs you can get. I mean, like literally I have four different types of kettlebells sitting uh, right next to my desk. I have an elliptical machine right behind me. And it's all things that are not for the sake of, I need to stay trim. That's a side effect. It's I need to stay creative. So when I need to generate ideas, I keep myself moving, turn that into an entire online program. 
And then from there, it just kind of blew up and expanded into now what's talking about time management and productivity and setting goals. And like you talk about, like you have to have a plan if you want to go anywhere. And then over the last year or two, a lot of people have really been coming to me for networking strategies and career development because it's, it's, I see the same progression over and over and over. I barely make it through the day, can't function at my job. What do you recommend? You got to start moving. Go take a walk. Get a height adjustable desk. Oh, I'm feeling pretty good now. Like I've, I've got some energy, but I don't know what to do next. Well, maybe it's time to talk about time management and prioritization. Oh my God, I love this stuff. I really know what I want to do now, but I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to make the connection. So it's been this kind of organic evolution where if I had gone back six years ago and you had said, so what's your business plan? Like, how are you going to monetize this? And I actually had a friend of mine that said that when I just started my podcast at the time, it was called Fitness and Post. And he said, so how are you going to monetize this? I'm like, what do you mean? How am I going to monetize it? Like, there's no money in this. I'm just doing this because I'm passionate about it. And I'd started a hiking group of other editors and whatnot. He's like, no, you're onto something, but you got to monetize it. I'm like, uh, okay, I, I, I don't really know what that means at the time. But then, <laughs> exactly. And I had another person that said the same thing to me. I'd done my first speaking engagement at an editor's conference. And this was a guy that was a big name in the conference world. He's like, and he, it was just, it was, you just think about like the, the biggest name in your industry. You're sitting and having dinner with him. You're like, oh my God, I'm sitting with this guy. And he just leaned over. He's like, I love what you're doing. You need a plan. You don't monetize. You're going to die. You're going to burn out. And I was like, whoa, like I hadn't thought about that. Like it can be a passion and an obsession, but if there isn't something that's driving it, it will burn you out. Mm -hmm. You want to look at all the podcasts that have 15 episodes and were last released two years ago. There's your answer. So that's when I started to ask myself, how do I package all the things that I'm doing which brought me to the movement program, Move Yourself, brought me to the time management, productivity, goal-setting program, which is Focus Yourself, and now to develop, developing the, the career advancement program. So there's, there's a lot of stuff that's been going on that's been very organic as opposed to six years ago, this is exactly what the plan is and I'm going to do all these things. Um, but the, the fundamental thing where all of this actually began was deciding that I didn't want to spend the rest of my life putting my kids to bed via FaceTime every night. Is all about asking myself better questions. And the question I ask myself is, what about my life needs to change if I don't want to put my kids to bed via FaceTime anymore? And that's what really where all of this started on a much deeper emotional level. I, I would have to say um, the exact same thing in the sense of like, I, I, because we, but we, the thing is we're both cut from the same cloth. So we're both editors. We've both been doing this for decades. And I, I've been there. I've been the exact 16-hour days working. And, and I, I made my bones in indie film. So it's just mm. like constant indie film world. And it's always like, use my gear, come in. They're sitting on my couch, like sitting with us right mm-hmm. behind me. All this stuff. And I jumped into color and I jumped into post-supervising and you know, kind of built out all that kind of VFX supervising and things like that as well. But a lot of the stuff that you're talking about pretty much covers all post. Anybody in post, audio, visual effects, anyone who sits at a desk for mm-hmm. 10 to 12 hours a day. And even what we do now is still sitting at like podcasting and creating content on a computer. Like I'm sitting down 12 hours a day, you know, give or take, you know, and I break with meditations and I, and I do work out in the mornings and, and I'm able to do it. But is there anything specific um, that you can suggest a couple of tips for someone who sits down all day on a computer that they can do to kind of just get the ball rolling. 
Yes. So there are two tips that I give everybody. If we're talking about square one, they have no idea where to start, what's going to have the most impact. They have to change two things about the way that they manage their day. Number one, no matter what, you have to stop eating at your desk. Oh, yeah. Right? That's a big one. And for a lot of people, that's really scary. I had one client of mine that said to me, I was at a job where they literally told me, if I step away from my desk for lunch, they will fire me. I'm like, well, then you don't need to work there, first of all. Um, but you you need to stand up for yourself and set that boundary. And he ended up quitting because of that. Um, so it, it's, it's a very real thing. I think for a lot of people, psychologically, they have that fear and they just assume that's the cultural expectation. But you have to set the expectation of the boundary that no matter what, I'm not going to be available while I'm eating. And yes, every once in a while, there's crunch time. There's something that if you don't get it out by three o'clock, you know, whatever, like I'll, I'll, I'll forgive those once or twice a season, right? Over a four to six month period on a show, I'll forgive that a couple of times. But other than that, non-negotiable, I will not eat at my desk. Number two, you have to prioritize time to take a minimum of 30 minutes of walking during your workday. And people say, well, that's impossible. I don't have an extra 30 minutes in my day to go for a walking break. Do you know how busy I am? But what they don't realize is that it's not about working more hours. It's about working better hours. And what I found, and this has just become a rote habit for me now, even as a podcaster and a writer and a coach and everything else, that in the afternoon, it's just like clockwork. I don't even need an alarm anymore. My brain just says about 3.30 p.m., oh, Got to go for my walking break now. It's it's just become rote habit. But what I do is it's called productive meditation. So instead of me just going out and talking to my friends or whatever, what I'm doing is I'm collecting the thoughts for whatever my task is going to be at four o'clock, whether it's me cutting a scene. So I might choose a scene in advance and be intentional about it and say, all right, here's what the scene is about. What are the challenges? And I cut the scene in my head. Or if I'm writing an article for my website, or I'm going to be doing a podcast interview, whatever it might be, like just before our interview today, you know what I did? I took a 45 minute walk around our neighborhood and I listened to your podcast because I wanted to get a sense of, you know, what, and again, it was just a a matter of, I wanted to be able to really understand your voice and your mission and your passion. Um, Because again, like I I should have discovered you years ago and I should have listened to every single possible episode you've ever done. Mm -hmm. Um, But outside of when I discovered you a couple of months ago, I hadn't uh, really jumped really deep into the work that you had done, but that got my brain primed and ready to be the right fit for this and know what the the right topics of conversation are. I'll do the same thing if I'm going to have a podcast interview with somebody else where I'm the host. Well, I'm going to listen to past interviews that they've done so I understand what's the most important thing for them. If I'm going to write an article and I need to outline it, I outline it while I'm walking. So most of my article outlines are dictations. So I'll take a half hour walk and I'll just dictate, okay, so part one, I think needs to be this and this and this and transition to this. And oh, don't forget to add this quote from this one person. So by the time I sit at my computer, I don't have blank page or blank timeline syndrome where I say, oh God, I have to start another scene now. I've already started it in motion. And they've done numerous studies that the number one way to jumpstart creativity is by walking. It's, yeah. it's, just, it's scientifically proven. So if somebody's gonna start somewhere, you gotta prioritize walking and you got to eat away from your desk. I, I, I get some of my best ideas from walking, bike riding, uh, and driving. Like if I have mm-hmm. to do a long commute, your mind just starts. Uh-huh. Ways. But if we want to get more physical, let's not drive. But biking or, or walking, uh, it, it, I get the best ideas. And also in meditation, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not moving, but still meditation does help with the mental, obviously it helps your mental mindset. 
Yes, yeah, but I mean, what I, you're doing in what you're doing in all of those things is you're activating something in the brain called the default network because mm-hmm. you're not feeding it stimulation. You're not in front of a screen. You're not right. actively trying to solve a problem. You're not passively scrolling through Facebook or Instagram or news feeds or whatever it is. You're just letting your brain think freely, which is why we have the best ideas in the shower, washing dishes, taking bike rides, because there's really nothing else we can be doing except to be with our thoughts. And that's where the brain takes all the random things and it starts to connect them for you. That's essentially the definition of creativity. So if you're being hired to be creative and make decisions all day long, why wouldn't you afford yourself the freedom to have better ideas? The only way to do that is to step away from the workstation and guilt-free so you're not thinking, oh, well, I need to be at my computer all day long or they're not going to th- they're going to think I'm not working and I'm lazy. We got to get rid of that cultural expectation. Right? I'll take you every single day when I was on Cobra Kai, like clockwork, you could have gone around the lot 4 p.m. There I am just staring at the floor. Like you you would think I was like a crazy homeless guy. All right, got to got to cut the next scene. You know, got to do this. This is what I'm going to do the montage. But I just I'm doing it while I'm walking. I walk into the attic, right? Smoke coming off the keyboard cuz all the ideas are already there. But I am by far in the office the least of anybody that I work with on my teams. And it drives everybody crazy. It's like, how is he going home at 7.30 every day? What's that all about? What's, he's taking walks and he's eating outside for an hour. How dare he, right? Oh, I got that too. I used to get that all the time when I, when I had – I only had two, uh, two full-time jobs. Like actually like hired staff jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fired from both. Um, I am an entrepreneur. Yeah, in the in the in the blood before I even uh-huh. knew I was an entrepreneur, and I used to work at a network, and I was the fastest editor there, and I would cut everything. I'd be done at like, oh, I gotta catch the train, and people would be sitting there until eight or nine, and they'd just be mm-hmm. pissed. I'm like, just you know, I don't you're know you're I hiring me to get the work done. You give me a deadline, you tell yeah. me what your expectation is of the work, done. and I will meet both of those. Yeah, but don't tell me I have to be tied to my workstation just cause. So it's yeah. not how it works, right? That that is the entrepreneur mindset. Um, and my guess is you had a similar realization that I did where, and I've actually been told this um, by multiple producers and collaborators. They've said, I love working with you until I tell you, you have to do something. Yeah, no, yeah. And, and what I realized is that I am really good at working with people. I am yes. horrible at working for people. Yes. I can't work for people, but I'm really good at working with them. Correct. Yeah. Which again, I talk about this in the, the interview, uh, in the podcast interview with the Cobra Kai creators. I made sure that we were going to be working with each other. We were going to be collaborators. And yeah, I know they make more money and they get more prestige and And it's their show. And when push comes to shove, they're the ones that are going to make the choice. Yeah, of course. It's not a matter of like, I'm going to get final cut. I know that technically I work for you, but the collaborative process, I have to feel like I'm working with you. That's really, really important to me because I can't work for people. I'm over it. Can't do it. That's why I do what I do. I'm just wired. And as as we get older, the tolerance for that stuff just goes. Oh, it's my tolerance is gone. (laughs) There's zero tolerance left. At twenty, at twenty-two, I was like one of the highest-paid editors in Florida because I was making nice. obscene amounts of money in the in the, in the late nineties. Because it was nineties, so there was money. Oh sure, everywhere it was everywhere. White dust all over the cash. Oh, they were it was insane. It was insane. And I was like, I walked into that first job interview and I said, "Well, I need this much money." And I was so cocky because I was freelancing like crazy. I was doing commercials mm-hmm. and music videos and stuff, and they wanted me to come on as a staff staff guy and i was like okay i need x amount of dollars i need at least three weeks vacation and this is how arrogant and just stupid i was i go and i need two days a month off just to re to recharge i can't with the <laughs> can you imagine like i was such an arrogant little crap little shit 
and and they're like, yeah, sure. And they gave it to me. And wow. that lasted about a year and a half. Because and, and that was generally the, the the turning point. It was literally about a year and a half before I just started to self-sabotage. Mm-hmm. Started to be such an ass that I just, you know, it was I would get angry and bored. So everyone listening out there, if you're in a job that you hate and you might you might have what we have is entrepreneurial situs. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I like that. Yeah. Uh, entrepreneurialitis. It's an affliction. There's it's, no question. It is, it is an affliction. You are born with it. It is not something you learn. It is something that's in your blood. And I realized that early. And I've been doing entrepreneurial stuff. God, since I was out, I, I made money when I was 11 garage sailing. Mm-hmm. Like that's how I used to make my cash was just doing garage sales. And I would just walk around with wads of cash for an 11 year old, <laughs> 12 year old. I walk around with a hundred bucks to go buy my baseball cards and comic books. Sure. <laughs> but it is, it is, is definitely, um, it is definitely, if you're thinking out there, like maybe I'm an entrepreneur, it, it might, it might be. <laughs> yes. And what, when, remember the guy, um, oh God, Foxworthy, Jeff Foxworthy. You might uh-huh. be a redneck if. So yeah. If you don't like working for people, you might be an entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah. If you can't stand this or that, you might be an entrepreneur. We have to come up with like. It, yeah. <laughs> if. If somebody is going to give you a note and all you want to do is kick them in the nuts, you might be an entrepreneur. <laughs> exactly. If when you're sitting alone at home and you're thinking of ideas on how to build a business while you're working a, 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 a job for minimum wage, you might be an entrepreneur. If all you do is sit around all day long thinking about the 50 different ways your boss is an idiot, you might be an entrepreneur. Exactly. Exactly. That's why I came up with the filmtrepreneur because it was just like, we need to have filmmakers start thinking more like entrepreneurs because I think yeah. such, oh, a, absolutely. such that, a lack in this business that, which, and we say business, we say the word business. It's called the film mm-hmm, it's in there. The industry, oh. the film industry. It's yeah. It's money guys. You got to understand which, which how to is enough. It's another thing that makes it so crazy that you and I have never connected because that's one of the foundational things that I talk about. So when I, if I do a live seminar, if I'm talking to a group of editors or other people in Hollywood, um, I always do a survey at the very beginning. I'm like, all right, so how many people in the room are, are editors, right? You get 50, 60, 70 hands that go up. All right, cool. So how many of you are a little bit earlier on, maybe your PAs, assistants, you know, support staff, get a bunch of other hands go up. Anybody else that I didn't get? Yeah, I'm a sound mixer. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. So how many of you in here um, are a, a business owner that sells a product or service? Nothing. Oh, okay. Hold on. Maybe the mic is broken. Um, how many of you in this room are nice. business owners that uh, sell a product or service? And I get this. Um, I Some hands, maybe. Let me ask you one more time. <laughs> How many people in this room are business owners that own, that sell a product or service? And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait a minute. That's oh, he means us. Oh, and then every single hand goes up. I'm like, you have to treat yourself like you are the CEO of a business of one. A yes. CEO isn't just working on their craft. They have to market and pitch their product or service. And if all you want to do is sit in that dark room and learn the technology, that's great but nobody's ever going to discover you. So you have to learn how do you think of yourself as a business, even if you're working for other companies, even if you're staff, there is no world anymore where we come out of college, we start at the bottom rung of the ladder of a giant corporation where we work for General Motors or Ford or Microsoft or Google or whoever it is. We work for them for 30 plus years and then we get a nice pension and we retire. Those days are over. 
So you have to treat yourself like you are a business and you are constantly moving from one client to the next. And for some reason, creative people just don't seem to grasp that very well. Nope. And that's why there's so many areas in our business that there are sharks, predators, and parasites who take advantage of the creatives that, that don't understand that. Distribution comes to mind. Uh-huh. And, and, and post comes to mind. I mean, I've Oh, post-production for sure, yeah. Oh my God, so many producers who don't, like these editors who just don't understand their worth. Like I, when I was, dude, I came out, when I came out to LA, just when I, the first job I had when I landed, I was editing, color grading, and post-supervising an entire feature for 10 grand. Oh God, that's painful. The whole thing, <laughs> the whole thing. I was. I've so, been there. I was so happy though, and she was a great. She was a great director, and we had a. We built a great relationship, and it was my first job. It was my first job in LA, so I landed with that job waiting mm-hmm. for me. So I was so grateful for it, you know. And I know a lot of people are like ten grand. That's a lot. The, I worked on that project probably about three months. Yeah, you you, the- you extrapolate for the amount of time, and it's like nothing. You could have made more if you were an assistant manager at McDonald's right. and worked less. Exactly. And by the way, that film never got released. Yeah, that, which it, is it usually the case in the indie world. Never got a release, ever. Like, didn't even get thrown anywhere. It's, it's non-existent. Yeah. So, well, it, 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 it's, yeah. <laughs> and it's funny you bring up this idea of uh, just the, the exploitation of creatives and artists. Oh. Um, I, I literally just released an article yesterday talking about this because there's research that has come out that actually proves this is the case. And there's a term for it. It's called the passion tax. So they, they actually did research at Duke University and they found that it is deemed more culturally acceptable to take advantage of artists and creative people and those that are passionate about their work. And it's less acceptable to take advantage of somebody that doesn't enjoy what they do. It's just science at this point. So anybody that feels like, God, is, is it just me or do I feel like my good nature and my talents are being taken advantage of? Oh, no. Oh, no. It, it's a real thing. And it now even has the term. So it's very, very real. And if we do not learn how to use the magic word properly, it's just going to keep happening. So everybody asks, how do, how do I change things? How do I make things better? What am I missing? You have to learn how to use one word yes. extremely well. You yes. better learn the word no. Mm-hmm. No is the most important word if you have any interest in pursuing a fulfilling career in this business. Otherwise, people will chew you up and spit you out. And when you're starting out, you're going to have – you generally eat some crow when you're starting out. When you're Oh, absolutely. You can't say no from day one. No. But you can say no to things, again, that are not the right opportunity. So for me, at 24 years old, I was saying no to six-figure jobs in the trailer world right. because I knew it wasn't the direction I wanted to go. So that's not saying no belligerently like I'm an ass. That's just, you know what? Unfortunately, this isn't a good fit. I would rather go down this path and climb this ladder instead. That was me saying the word no in so many words. But right. everybody just wants to chase the next gig and land the next paycheck. And as soon as that happens, it becomes this vicious cycle of the lifestyle expands and my network expands to be more people that have more of the exact same kind of work. Then it's a decade later wondering, the hell am I still cutting reality? When did that happen? I never wanted to do this. It's because you keep saying yes. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I wanted to ask you something because I know this is something that a lot of our people in our business, I'm sure you know a lot of them are going through this right now with COVID. You know, when you're working as a freelancer and you're working on jobs like, you know, going on Cobra Kai or things like that, that's great. That's wonderful. Um, But in a situation like we're in right now, which is obviously once in a generation situation, Mm -hmm. when you rely on someone else for your livelihood, 
it is a very dangerous place to be. And I'm trying, I've been trying to say that to people for a long time, especially filmmakers, because when you have films, you own the rights, you set things up right, you have passive income coming in from those, those films. Uh, and if you create courses, you create other ancillary product lines, and that's what the whole Film Entrepreneur book that I wrote and all that stuff is about. When this hit, I, I just saw, I'm seeing, still seeing, you know, colleagues of mine who are just like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't. I, just don't where I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm and it hurts me. And it's I'm like, I've been trying to say this for years. I'm like, guys, you've got to build out something outside of this. You've got to have some sort of control of your destiny. Because when you when you work for a major corporation, and it could be any of the big studios or any big giant corporation in any field, they will cut you so quick, generally speaking, to cut their bottom line or to survive. You are not top of their priority. And I don't care if you've been there 30 years, it, they will do it. So can you talk a little bit about what, because you, you and I both, how long have you been doing uh, Optimize this? Uh, well, I, I made, uh, so I, I made the transition to Optimize Yourself and rebranded in 2017. So this has been about three and a half years, but I started the original podcast and the blog and everything else about six, 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 six and a half years ago. So you so already I've, started I've been in, down that path. I, oh yeah, I had started down this path a long time ago for the exact same reason. So to go back to this idea of people realizing that their livelihoods depend on others, the first thing that I did the Monday morning after lockdown happened, uh, this was in the middle of March, I had an all hands on deck Zoom call with all the people in my coaching and mentorship community, all my students. We all got on the call and I just, I wanted to talk about what they were feeling. What's going on in your heads? Like, what can we do about this? And the number one sentiment that I heard, and then furthermore, the number one sentiment that I got via social media and emails for the next several weeks was I finally had the realization that my entire livelihood depends on other people's ideas and projects. And that's terrifying because as a craftsperson, I can't just decide I'm going to wake up and make something for myself. Other people's ideas need to come to fruition such that, that they need me as a technician, Right. And that scared a lot of people. I had the exact same realization, but I had it six years ago. Mm-hmm. I had it when I was working on Empire. So this was, uh, it's, you may or may not remember, Empire was a huge oh, cultural I, phenomenon. I, when oh, it I, I've watched like, almost every episode. Yeah, so the, so the, the next several seasons, I mean, it, it kind of you know, took a, a pretty big nosedive. But the first season oh, was a cultural phenomenon. Amazing Empire first season. Breaking decades of ratings records. And in the world of streaming and Netflix, it was appointment television. I remember going to watch the season one finale, which I cut in a bar that was standing room only and you couldn't get in and it had a line out the block for people that wanted to watch it live. It was an unreal experience. But I had the realization that I have now hit the glass ceiling. I'm in my, I must've been about 34, 35 at the time. So it was about five, six years ago. And I was like, this is it. This is what I do for the next 30 plus years of my career. And if I can't find other jobs like this, I don't know how to make a living. The only thing that anybody has ever given me money to do since I was 13 years old is edit. What if I don't want to edit anymore? And that was a terrifying moment of realization. I mean, like that leveled me because I was just so blind to climbing the ladder to being a successful editor that I got there. 25 million people are watching what I cut. And I'm like, oh my God, this is all that I do. I have no other marketable skills. Now what? So I had the exact same realization I'm just fortunate that I had it six years ago, such that I'm in the position now where I have other ancillary for, uh, forms of income. And as soon as the pandemic hit, and you may have gone through something similar, 
when everything started to go into lockdown, I had a three-day period where I pretty much just stared at the wall. I'm like, oh my God, like what in the world is going on? And like, mm-hmm. what can I do about this? And am, am I ever going to get a client again? Like, will people even care about listening to podcasts or reading? Like, oh my God. And then on Monday morning, he's like, all right, this is it. This is the moment that I have been built for. I have all of the systems in place. I have an audience in place. I have the tools. I have the courses. This is the whole point of this. Maybe I'm not completely ready for it and I hadn't planned for it, but this is the whole point of why I made the transition. And since then, as you and I have already talked about, gasoline on a fire, just mass explosion because so many people have gone from, oh, it would be nice to have those strategies, but right now I'm just too busy, too too much work. I'm just too busy to worry about it. There's nothing scarier than when you realize that your excuse for why you're not doing things is you don't have enough time. And then you're given all the time in the world and you realize time wasn't the problem because I've got it all and I still have no idea what to do. That's been a very scary realization for a lot of people. Yeah. And, and I, I agree with you 110%. I, I had that realization five years ago uh, when I read a book called The 4-Hour Workweek. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, a big one. The Tim, the Tim Ferriss book, which I've talked about a lot on the show. And that was the book that that kind of opened my eyes to say, oh, oh, I could, I could build an online business. Mm-hmm. And you know, the funny thing is I had built an online business. I don't even think I've ever said this on the show. I had built an online business in the nineties. I was, I had a website. I had two, two websites in the nineties and I was selling banner ads for that mm. website. And I was, ma- we were making four or five grand a month, my, me and my partners. The problem was it cost four or five grand a month. Just the damn server bills were so damn expensive back then. So it was just, it was, it wasn't a real business that can, that could scale back then. Or at least I didn't understand. There wasn't nearly as much, as much information as there is now about it. But I'd always, you know, I was doing Amazon affiliates in the nineties. I understood what that was. So it was kind of scary to step my foot back into it when I did uh, Indie Film Hustle. And you're right. Like I was already, I was editing, I was directing. I did post all of that stuff during the building stage of the film hustle, the initial building stage of the film hustle. And then two and a half years ago, I just said, I'm done. I don't want to do anymore. I'm going to shut down my post-production. And when people call me, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of. Yeah. And when, and, I say, the- and when I say that out loud, it's weird. <laughs> yeah. It's scary because your, your identity is tied up in that, right? It the, was for one well, one of the things that's both very rewarding and also terrifying about when you're a creative professional is everybody says the same thing. Oh, editing isn't what I do. It's who I am. Directing oh, isn't I what I do. I it's who I am, right? And I get that. I, I understand how that generates ideas and it generates creativity and it gives you ownership of your work. It will also consume and destroy you. Absolutely. If you tie your entire identity up in what you do, which is why so many people are having these horribly horrific come to Jesus moments because of the pandemic, because their identity was completely tied up in their work. Now they have no work. Who am I? What do I do? What is my purpose? And that's, right? that's a, that's a pretty big spiral to start going down. That's uh, very scary. I mean, I, I was for, for a decade, I'm a director. I'm a director that edits on the side mm-hmm. and that's, that's what I was. And I wasn't anything else And my entire world was that. And every time the directing did not work, which oddly enough, it would happen a couple of times. Um, that I, the certain projects didn't show up. I didn't get the funding. I, that, that project went down. I wrote a whole book on the first one that, you know, when I worked, almost made a movie with the mob and all of these kind of things, uh, my whole world came crashing down and it was just up and down, up and down. It was just, it's just brutal. 
till I finally came to realize I'm like, I'm not a direct, I'm not only a director, I'm a human being that happens to mm-hmm. direct. I'm a human being that happens to edit. And then I started adding more job titles to that. And it made me feel better. But first and foremost, I am a human. Then I'm a dad, mm-hmm. husband. And, and that's more important than and all this other stuff. And, and I've met, and you've, I'm sure you've met them, filmmakers who just like, all I do is watch Kurosawa and Kubrick films all day. And I am just that dude. And I'm going to be mm-hmm. in the Criterion collection and I'm going to, and I'm going to do this. And that's great. And I was that dude. I'm sure you were at a certain point, like really went deep down the rabbit hole on that stuff. But that can't be the only thing that, that you are. Because mm-hmm. if that goes away, you're left, you know, you're left, that's why like in going off topic, like if you're, a wife or a husband, and that's who you are. That's I'm only a husband. I'm only a wife, and you get divorced. What, what do you do? What do you do? Or you know. or you're or you're only a mom, and your kids go off to college, right? Same thing. And then it's it's empty nest syndrome. So this is just people going through empty nest syndrome on a creative level, and it's right? massive, and it's it, massive. Yeah, it's scary. It's, it's it's really scary what's going on out there, and and that's why you know and we were just talking we we're kind of joking about it like how many podcasts have popped up like all of a sudden everyone was like you know what i'm going to i think it's time i'm going to start a podcast mm-hmm. but they have no understanding on what to do how to do it and they're just like i'm just going to start you know yeah i I've, I've, I've had multiple uh coaching calls and community calls and friends and colleagues just coming out of the woodwork late march early april Hey, do you mind getting on a Zoom call? I'd love to learn more about how you do the podcast or how does your coaching work, right? So I had, uh, had one person um, that in less than two weeks went from I'm an editor to I think I'm going to start something to I'm already charging people for coaching calls. I'm just like, whoa, like that's ridiculous, right? But that that's the difference between this would be really cool, but I'm terrified versus I'm, I'm just going to put in the work and I'm going to take action. Um, but it's, it's, it's an area where you can't just say, eh, I'm going to put up a few episodes and thousands of people are going to download it. And well, I'm just, I'm choosing to do something different. I think what happens with people so often, they become successful at one thing and they decide now I want to become successful at something else, but it should happen right away. Cause I'm already successful. Oh no. How long did it take you to get to where you are the first time for me to really say truly that I was a successful editor took me over a decade. I would say that when I was comfortably settled on burn notice, it was the first time I could own that, you know what? I'm an editor. I I feel like I'm legit a creative professional. I'm working on a high-end show. People will legitimately accept that I'm doing this. That took me a decade. Yeah. But if I'm going to go from doing that to now being a podcaster and a a blogger and a coach and everything else, well, that should, what do you think, six months to a year? Because I'm already successful. It shouldn't take that long. Well, why should it take you any less time to do this new thing? And as soon as I realized that, it took so much pressure off because I had this expectation, I'm already successful at this. Why can't I immediately become successful at that? But now that I look at it as, well, you know what? I'm about six years into this. I'm just now starting to hit my stride. I'm okay with that because that's about where I hit my stride when I was climbing the editing ladder. So when I think about that, three, four years from now, I'll probably be at the equivalent of where I was as an editor on burn notice. Right. And from there, it'll keep building, but it's all about consistency, right? People uh-huh. just want to jump in and they want to be like, yeah, I'm going to do this, this, and this. And they have 12 podcasts that come out in a week. And then they have 12 podcasts that come out ever. Oh, it's just too hard. But multiple people, these new podcasters, oh. this is so much work. Yeah, it is. You got to keep doing it every single week. 
It doesn't matter if you have a good episode, if you have a not so good episode, if you don't feel like it, you just have to keep showing up. People so whenever, it, and, it, and again, it goes, it goes back to this idea of, oh God, sounds like a lot of work, right? <laughs> it is. When, even when I was young, like just out of college, when I just made the transition from assistant editor to editor, people would say, how did you do that so quickly? And I would say, it's, it, the answer is not sexy. I just showed up every single day. I showed up five minutes earlier than I was supposed to. I left later than I was supposed to, first in, last out. I did the work and I was good at what I did. Oh, really? That, that's what it was? Yep, I was consistent. That is my secret weapon. That's sexy. the magic bullet. I sexy. just keep showing up every day relentlessly. Have that's all it is. Seen, have you ever seen the movie Jiro Dreams of Sushi? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. That, what a, that, that, what that's a, what it's all about. Great documentary. And I always tell people, I'm like, I don't know if you guys saw the documentary, but if you're going to if you're going to become uh, um, uh, an apprentice of Jiro, you don't touch fish for three years. You just do rice. Mm -hmm. It's like you want to be a sushi chef. Well, the sexy stuff is like slicing and creating. And he goes, no, no. Three years of rice duty. Mm -hmm. So you have to master rice. And that's the thing that most people just want to go right to the, the three, you know, the Michelin star sushi chef. They don't want to learn the rice. Mm -hmm. And that's where most filmmakers are. Most filmmakers want that dream that we were taught, especially of our generation that was taught in the nineties, which is the mariachi story, the, the, you know, the paranormal activity, the clerks, you know, mm -hmm. all of these kind of like these magical, you know, lottery tickets, but it takes just immense amounts of work to yep. get to You're any just, place and any field. And that, that's exactly the same thing for entrepreneurship, right? As you know, going from the post world to being an entrepreneur, you thought there was a lot of tech in post. Well, you got to learn a few different NLEs. <laughs> you come into the entrepreneur world, how many 27 different services do you have a monthly fee for uh, where this has to connect to this and this API and this coding? Oh, like when, I, when mm. I went back to editing, I was like, oh my God, it's just it's one so, program. This so is so easy, easy. right? It's so simple. But, the, but if you, again, going back to this idea of consistency, all I did was I said, I'm going to get good at one thing. I'm just going to learn. When At the time it was, I just want to learn MailChimp. I just want to get good at MailChimp. Great. Now I need to get good at what does a podcast workflow look like? What are the tools just for that? Once I'm good at podcasting, once I know MailChimp, what's the next step? Then you add another tool, another step of the process. But I'm a big believer that, especially at the entrepreneur level or the indie film level, you can't just be the guy that's, I'm the visionary and I surround myself with everybody else. You have to understand all the jobs at a certain level. You can't be an expert at all of them because I also think that's counterintuitive and a waste of time. But if you're going to be able to communicate with people at their level, you have to use their language. So I'm not good at coding websites, but I can do the basics such that when I'm speaking to a web developer, I can say, I need to be able to do this, that, and the other oh, thing. Dude, and they don't come you. back could, and say, I could teach you. Yeah. But the, the, <laughs> the, the point is that I learn the language and I do it enough myself yeah. that I can have an educated conversation. It's yes. no different than I should know enough coloring so I can speak on an educated level with a colorist. Correct. I should know enough about the finishing process that I can talk to an online person. I should know just enough about Pro Tools or just the mixing workflow so I can have an educated conversation right. on a mixing stage, right? It's not a matter of I need to learn everything about all of these because at the end of the day, I'm not gonna do my own brain surgery. I wanna hire a brain surgeon, but I should at least understand the process. And as an entrepreneur, it's always been the same thing for me where I'm trying to learn every single stage 
just meticulously, methodically going back to the sniper approach where for months I'm just going to get good at this one thing. Once I'm good at this, then I move on to the next. But everybody's saying, well, I'm going to start a podcast and I'm going to have courses and I'm going to do coaching. It's like, you got to slow down. And you can't do it all at once and nope. without, without an infrastructure, without a system. Mm-hmm. And once you have that engine running, then it's easy to start dropping things in and just let it go. Yeah. But without a system, without understanding all the moving parts, and that's the thing with filmmakers. Filmmakers don't understand. They only think about the sexy part, which is on set, shooting, you know, even, even editing is sexy. Once that movie's finished, they, they check out. They mm-hmm. check out. They're like, oh, okay, I'm, oof, I'm done now. Thank God. I have to give it to the distributor. And I'll just get paid. No, you've right. got to understand the whole process. Like you said, an educated conversation with a DP, an educated conversation with a distributor, an educated con- conversation with a screenwriter. Just generalized things so you can understand that stuff. I've been saying that yeah. forever. Yeah, and the, and the distribution side of it is a huge, just this dark hole that nobody understands when you're on the, the creative side or the craft side. Um, and I don't even know if we uh, have talked about this at all or not, but I directed my own uh, documentary film that I worked on for eight years. So I've been through the ringer from I have an idea to I have to raise the money to I have to shoot and produce this thing to I have to work with an editor to now I have to get digital distribution and I need to somehow make some of this money back and I need to get it on multiple different platforms to get it in festivals. And as an editor, well, the way it works is you hand me footage and then I hand you a cut. That's it. Once picture locks, I'm out, baby. Right. And I realized such a small part of the process. And for me, I I knew enough about pre-production and everything else that that wasn't that big of a, a revelation. But it was once the film is finished, you have barely just begun oh, the process. And, and that's and, and it's so difficult to get to that point mm-hmm. with a feature film specifically or a series or anything like that to to think, oh God, I have. Oh, I have, and it's not a few weeks. No, it's, it's we're year. talking years, yeah, years. Like, I, and I, and I went through that process, and it's really disheartening when you don't see it coming in advance. <laughs> but if you know that you want to make a film, you got to plan that into your expectations. Like, it's not just I lock picture and I'm out. I actually want people to see this, and I'd like to be able to make money off of it. So you need to build that into the amount of time that you're going to prioritize and the plan that you create, because otherwise, what was it all for? Like, what was the point? Now. Do you do you have um do you have the same syndrome I do shiny light syndrome? Yeah, it's a really bad thing. Shiny light. Syndrome. I call it squirrel syndrome, but yes, Squir- S- similar, similar. Yeah, oh shiny yes, light yeah. Syndrome, I, I actually I, I was actually diagnosed with adult onset ADD at 25, which is the whole reason that my program was built because I needed it because I couldn't get anything done because yeah it's the you know squirrel syndrome shiny object syndrome whatever. Ooh, I'm gonna do that next. Oh, but I could also do this right. It's like just yeah. how do you stop any and just focus on, how on to, one thing. Because creatives are like that. We're filmmakers. Oh, God, yes. We have one idea here. We have one idea there. We have one idea here. And and you just won't ever get anywhere. What, what, any advice on that? Yes. So the advice that I have is that you need a place to, number one, capture all of those ideas. Because I think the biggest fear is I'm going to have the idea. And if I don't do it right now, I'm never going to be able to realize this thing. So I got to take action. Mm-hmm. But that never gets you anywhere and you spin in circles. So you need a system such that you can capture all of the ideas but give yourself the time to process them, look at all of them at once and say, well, what are all of the great ideas that I have? And which one should I really pursue next such that if I pursue just that thing, leaving everything else on my someday list, 
it's going to make all the other ideas that I want to act upon easier because I have accomplished and successfully finished this thing first. That's a really, really hard thing to do when you have shiny object syndrome or squirrel syndrome. But when you look at the big picture and you just force yourself to stop and prioritize everything, you realize in the long term, I might have to set my expectation that this thing isn't going to get done as soon as I want it to get done. But if I can do everything right, instead of worrying about doing everything fast, imagine how much better things can end up working out if you're patient. I am, I am so frustrated that I don't have four or five more of me. It's, <laughs> I'm convinced you already have three. So <laughs> It's multiplicity, just like that yes. Michael Keaton movie. That's <laughs> exactly what I was just thinking. Like I, I saw your podcast and I'm like, how many of you are there? <laughs> I, it's, it's, it's so fun because I literally have the next two years mapped out mm-hmm. I've of, of ideas and projects and things that I need to be pumping out. And it's so frustrating to me. Like, oh, oh, I just want it, all of it done now. I want it I just, all done I'm the same way. I've, I've, the, what I talk about when we when I talk about with productivity with uh, with my students, I say to them, if I were to shut the world off, disconnect every form of communication, and I just worked from all of the things that I have on Trello as far as my plans for the next few months or whatever, I have about four years of things to do without getting bored. At least four years worth of things that I want to accomplish with no new ideas and no new external expectations. But the reason I don't have all the anxiety about it is because I have it all processed. It's all sitting there waiting for me when I'm ready, but I know what I have to do next. I know what my one thing is right now, and there's only so much I can accomplish in any 24 hours or any seven days in a week. So So let me just make the most of that time and know that the rest of it will be there as it's waiting for me. That, that's so, the best that you can do, but it, it's very, very frustrating. It's so frustrating. It's I know you like you were telling me like how do you how do you do all the stuff? Do you do like how many podcasts do you have all this stuff? And I'm going, I'm slacking, dude. I'm just such a slacker. <laughs> I just there's I, I, you don't understand. There's like 20 things sitting behind me that I could do right now. I feel like mm-hmm. I'm a failure, and it's so weird to think that thing. Sometimes these thoughts are coming to your head, like oh, but I could do more. I could mm-hmm. do more, and it's a, and it's a sickness. But it's if you know how to harness that energy, it could be very powerful. Yeah, so what what everybody else sees is what you've accomplished. What you see is everything you're not accomplishing. <laughs> exactly. Right? That's an entrepreneur. That's so, that's the way that we're wired. I know all the ideas. I know what it's supposed to look like on this day on the calendar, but you're not seeing all those things because I suck and I'm lazy and I'm not hustling enough. And everybody else is saying, this is fantastic, right? Like I even told you, I looked at your podcast on all your websites. And I'm like, man, I'm just accomplishing nothing with my life. <laughs> What am I doing here, Mr. I'm releasing one podcast a week and you shit out a podcast like every three hours. Like, who am I? <laughs> right? So I'm, uh, I'm, I, I definitely have the same syndrome. I definitely get it. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a quick story, uh, James Cameron story. So I, I had a friend of mine who's a director who, um, who I had him on the show and he, uh, he got to um, shadow James Cameron while he was making Avatar before mm-hmm. anyone knew anything. And he's there shadowing him and you know, he's got the, they're in the capture, the capture stage and all that kind of stuff. Right. And there's like, you know, you know, 50 people on you know, three, three levels with computers and wires everywhere. And he's got that camera that we all saw that he just, it's super cool. Mm-hmm. And he, and he's just sitting there watching James and he's like doing the shot and he goes for the shot and he runs into a tree, a digital tree. And he goes, damn it, Bob, Bob, get this tree out. And you see this giant mouse come in from like God takes the tree with roots and all and moves at 30 feet. And goes, <laughs> all right, let's go again. Like that's an, ins- that's an insane technology 
back when Avatar, still an insane technology, but it was insane technology when he did it. So uh, my buddy walks up to him and goes, hey, uh, after like when they made these games, man, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Like the insane that you can use. It's pretty great. And he goes, you know what would be great? If this camera didn't have this damn cable attached to it. That's the problem I see. <laughs> so everyone else sees that like, holy cow, look what you're doing, James. And James only saw the cable. Uh huh. That's, and that's where we're at. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's, he's an entrepreneur, right? It's, oh. it's, it's the same thing. All we see are the things that we are not accomplishing. So it's it's definitely a sickness, and it's a, it's it's a tough one to get over. But uh, the best the best advice I have is just focus on the thing you're doing next. And I just tell myself over and over and over, and it's really hard to to listen to myself say it. I just want to do it right before I do it fast. Quality over quantity. That's what I'm always working on. It's just I want to make sure is this the best it can be, but without being a perfectionist because that's also another reflection mm. where then the imposter syndrome really crawls. Oh no, this isn't good enough right? It's got to be perfect before I can release it. Just put it out, right? Like if, if, if I go back to my first podcast, they're awful. Oh, oh my God. Horrible, horrible. Production oh. values, crap. There's no theme to them. They just ramble. But you know what? I wouldn't be here where I am today had I not put those out and gotten feedback. Just all kinds of feedback, positive and negative, which guides me to where I am today. Yeah. So I, I've released multiple courses way before they should have been released to the public. But I do it in small cohorts with people that I trust so I can say, listen, this is not ready for prime time. I want to know what works and what doesn't. And they're like, oh, my God, I love this idea. This is great. But this one module made no sense at all. Like, all right, well, I guess I got to fix it. But if I waited until I felt like it was perfect, I still wouldn't have a podcast. I still wouldn't have a coaching program. And I certainly wouldn't have online courses. So you, you got to do it right before you do it fast. But you also just have to be willing to release things out into the world and iterate now, I'm going to ask you a few, because uh, we could talk for at least another two hours. Oh, easily. That's not even a question. I have at least 10 other questions that we didn't even Well, I was going to say you have like seven other podcasts, so we might so as well we just, just roll right this, into the next we one. We could just roll right into the. Uh-huh. <laughs> we might be doing that. So um, I'm going to ask you a few questions to ask all my guests. What advice would you give a filmmaker trying to break into the business today? That they need to be specific about what they want to do. This is, the, this is such an easy thing is you can't go into the business saying, I will do anything because that is going to get you into nothing but trouble. Number one, it's going to lead you down the wrong path doing something that isn't fulfilling to you. But number right. two, it makes it impossible for anyone to help you. Right. So for me, going back to this example of when I became an assistant editor right out of college, I didn't go into that interview saying, oh my God, I'll do anything. I went into them and I said, I think the best position for me right now is being an assistant editor at a trailer house. There's no better fit for me because what I really want to do is be a trailer editor. But I can't be a great trailer editor until I understand what an assistant does. Bam, job in the room, done. It's specificity. So when you're early in your career and you want to break in, everybody just wants to do anything to get their foot in the door, get your foot in the right door. And sometimes that yeah. means saying no to things, but you got to be specific and the only way people are going to help you is if they understand how to help you. That's a really big thing that I talk about where especially people breaking in say, oh, all of these people that are successful, they don't want to help me. I don't believe that's true. I believe that people want to help you, but they don't know how. And it's your job to tell them how they can help you by being specific. And what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn whether the film business or hmm. We just talked about it's this idea that uh, I, I have to be okay with only doing one thing at a time. That's really a lesson that's taken me 
almost 20 years to learn because every time that I'm working on a big project or I'm working on my own business now, again, it's just, I'm always focusing on what haven't I accomplished? What do I still need to do? And I think one of the, the most helpful lessons that I've learned in the last few years is I have to schedule regular time in my week to review the things that I have accomplished because it's so easy to say, well, it's Friday afternoon. Here's all the stuff I didn't get done. What if I took some time to look at what I have done over the last week? Let's review it from the outside perspective of everybody else. And as soon as I force myself to do that, it helps me rewire my brain to get to the point where I'm focused equally on what I have accomplished versus what I haven't. But it's taken me a long time to learn that lesson, and I'm still learning it to this day. And of course, the toughest question of all, three of your favorite films. Oh, that's not a hard one. Um, I would say it would be Memento, Inception, and... I know there's there's a lot in common there. I'm aware. Uh-huh. Um, the third one, probably totally off the beaten path from those, would be Field of Dreams. That's, Isn't it? I love that movie when it came out when I was like ten, and then I watched it for the first time when I was a dad. Oh my god, it destroyed me after I had my son. Like it was a great movie for years okay, and just, years and years, but once just, I had a kid, I was like, oh, I haven't watched. Ooh. Actually, like I just thought of yeah. it from the dad's perspective for a second. I was like, oh, watch eh. it as a father. Oh, yeah, I haven't. Seen you watch it, it as a father. Since my daughters it's, were born. It's it. W- it will slay you now that you're a father. Oh, because I love when yeah. I saw it in the it's, theater. It's hard. It's it's. it's oh, yeah, it's uh, magical. So that, those those would be my top three. And then, where can people find you and what you do and and, and all the good work? Absolutely. Uh, so they can go to my website, optimizeyourself.me. Um, and I have a ton, a ton of free guides. Um, I've got a couple of master classes that they can join. Um, so what I'm going to do for your listeners, I'm just going to put everything in one place where they can just um, opt in and I'm going to send them a link to all of it. So rather than having to randomly go around the site and find the ultimate guide to making it in Hollywood or the ultimate guide to optimizing creativity or, oh, shiny object syndrome, there's a, a deep work master class so I can focus on my one thing. I'm just going to put it all in one place. Optimize yourself.me slash indie film hustle. Okay, great. And I'll put that in the show notes, guys. Uh, Zach, man, it has been an amazing conversation. Like I said, we'll, we'll, we'll have you back on my other seven podcast. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. And you and you and I are going to have to start a mini mastermind because boy, do I have to pick your brain. I've got and, some stuff to learn from you. My and friend. vice versa, my friend, vice versa. It's an absolute pleasure. And thank you for doing the good work you're doing, man. You are a, a very cool voice in, 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 in what we do. Uh, and it's, it's rare to find. So I, I appreciate you and what you do, man. Well, thank you. And I appreciate you saying that as well. I want to thank Zach for coming on the show and sharing his crane kick of knowledge with the tribe today. Thank you so much, Zach. And as a bonus to the IFH tribe, Zach has put together a free ebook on how to write amazing outreach emails for you to get jobs, for you to get an agent, a manager, to get attention from somebody you're trying to get attention to. All you got to do is go to optimizeyourself.me forward slash indie film hustle. And guys, Zach is a really impressive guy. As you guys know now by listening to this interview, you should really check out his websites and links and things that he's working on. Because if you're a creative and you really want to get optimized and get healthy and become 
better, faster, almost like a bionic version of yourself, I definitely would check out his stuff. And it, you can get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, including how to get a hold of him and his wares at IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash 427 at the show notes. <laughs> 